0: How God seems to work together over the course of a week to wholly and totally convince you that what what's on your calendar is exactly what he intended for you to preach on this particular morning. And I'm very excited when Jesus does that. When Jesus just kind of confirms in my soul, yes, what you're about to preach is exactly what I want you to preach. And even so much as this last hymn that we just sang. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. Uh, There are people who have never heard that message. There are people who have been sitting in church their entire lives and have not heard that message. They may have had it preached or had something close to it preached their entire lives, but they've never heard it. Um, and, And it brings me joy to know that I have shared the gospel with people in that context, but it also makes me sad that I've had people come up to me after preaching sometimes and said, nobody has ever told me that this is the way God feels about me, that I spend my life worried that God doesn't want anything to do with me, that I have gone too far, I have done too much, I've ignored him too long, that I'm floored, that God loves me, Here's your news this morning, Stapleton. God doesn't just love you. He likes you too. Does does it make sense when I say that? You ever heard somebody give you kind of like that backhanded compliment? Like, I love them. I just don't really like them right now. You ever heard that? Ever heard somebody say it? Not only does God love you, He also likes you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a lot to do with you. Not just a little bit. Uh, Last week we started the book of Haggai, which may or may not seem a little random to some of you. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard any sermons from the book of Haggai outside last week, but it's pretty short. It's only a couple chapters long and has the reputation amongst the section of books it's found in of being one of the minor prophets who is probably the, the most direct and to the point Excuse me, of all the prophets. And the message at the beginning of Haggai last week, in a nutshell, was God was frustrated with His people because they had all the time in the world to build their house and none of the time in the world to build His. The Jews had just come back from captivity. They've returned to their homeland and they're really excited at the beginning and they build the altar to do sacrifices on and oh this is great worship is going to begin again and they lay the foundation of the temple and people weep because oh this is the temple is getting rebuilt this is wonderful but then you know what happened after they built the altar and after they laid the foundation they never finished the temple they never finished the building They had just enough get up and go to start, but not enough get up and go to finish. And as they started building the temple and stopped at the foundation, they went back to their own houses and decided that they were going to build. They were going to expand. They were going to pour their resources, time, effort, energy, and love into their own kingdoms instead of God's. And what they began to find was that the things that they were building weren't really cooperating. Their fields weren't producing crops like they were supposed to. That they were eating and eating and eating, but they were never full. They couldn't drink their problems away. It didn't matter how, much, how many layers of clothing they tried to put on. It seemed like they were always cold. And God says, why? Why is it like this? In verse 7, God said, Consider your ways, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. God said, It is extremely frustrating when a God who has done everything to bring you out of captivity and love you and set you apart to himself, when he's ignored. And if you don't look out, you can read that and you can go, well, wow, this seems pretty petty. Why would God do this? But the closer you look at it and the deeper you dig, you find out it's not petty. It's not just that these people haven't built a temple. It's that they don't care about God. They don't love him. And that truth of what's going on in their heart has made it out into their actions. What you love, you make time for. What you care about, you devote yourself to. And if you say you love God, but there's no evidence of that in your life, the reality is we should probably fess up if we don't see any of the outworkings of a heart devoted to love of Christ, the love of Christ is probably not in that heart. Let's just go ahead and admit it so that we can address the issue And if you've got this image in your head of God as this giant cosmic policeman who sits on his throne in heaven waiting to zap you with lightning every time you do something wrong, you would be pretty scared at the end of Haggai chapter 1 verse 11. You would think that God looked down at you and said, you know what, you don't care about me, fine. I don't care about you. I'm going to mess up your crops. I'm going to mess up your clothes. I'm going to mess up your health. I'm going to mess up your business. I'm going to mess up your wages until finally I'm going to break you. That's not what God is doing. We'll see that today. The way God treats his people is out of love, mercy, and grace. I want you to see this morning in Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, the grace of God's discipline. So if you would stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start in verse 12 and go down through 15. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Father, I pray that you would bless us in reading this word and Lord, that you would soften our hard hearts and that you would just bring us joy in the fact that you love us enough to get our attention in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. The grace of God's discipline. So last week, Haggai, a prophet, begins speaking. There is a lot of mistaken understanding of what a prophet Does. What a prophet means. A lot of time when you hear prophet, you think somebody who tells us what's going to happen in the future. Now biblical prophets did do that. But biblical prophets also accurately spoke the word of God to what was going on right then. A prophet's primary task was to tell the people what God had to say to them. That's what Haggai was doing. That God was very frustrated that His people had basically abandoned Him at heart. Now if you stop for just a second and think what God could have done. What could God do to a people who do not care about Him? It's kind of It's kind of dark. And I wouldn't have drawn this comic. But I understand what the author was trying to say. It was a picture of a bunch of kids in school. And they were totally and completely out of control. And the teacher lifts up her voice and says, Dear God, this school is out of control. Why would you let this happen? And heaven kind of opens up and the voice comes down to the teacher and says, Why are you asking me? You kicked me out years ago. Again, I wouldn't have drawn the comment, but I understand what the author is trying to say. That the scariest idea of God's wrath to me. We got off to a good start talking about wrath, didn't we? The scariest idea of God's wrath to me is God just completely taking his hands off. Saying, fine, you want it that way, you have it that way. You want to ignore me? You want to push me out? You want to do this on your own? You want to do this without me? You want me to leave you alone? Okay. I'll do it. I'll let you have have what you want, even though it might not be what you think it is. But you're on your own now. That's the scariest picture of God's wrath I can possibly think of. That's scarier to me than God actively disciplining me, actively punishing me is God just abandoning me because I abandoned Him? But thankfully, that's not what happens. Don't just fear God's presence. Recognize God's grace in that God cares enough about us to shake us out of our sleepiness. He cares enough about us to say, hey, don't just ignore me. It's going to hurt you. It's not good for you. There is no such thing as finding happiness outside of God. Because there is no happiness outside of Him. It's not that God is withholding it from you. It's that there's not any there to be found. If you want real joy, you've got to find it in Him. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Now, what was it that Haggai had told them to do? Build the temple, right? But it says they obeyed the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Here's what their obedience looked like. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. That was their obedience. Now when I read this, my first thought is, wait a minute, I'm seeing a disconnect. Haggai had said, obedience is building the temple. But then it says they feared the Lord and that's regarded as their obedience. What that means to me when it says they obeyed the Lord by fearing Him is they didn't fear Him in the first place. That's why the temple wasn't getting built. They didn't fear God. The problem wasn't that they hadn't brought out the hammer and nails, the problem was, was that their heart was cold. Here's your question, Stapleton. Is your heart cold this morning? Just real... I love Haggai studying it because it's not all that complicated. And yet somehow I can still preach 50-minute sermons on it. Uh, Haggai's not all that complicated and honestly, the call to God is not all that complicated either. Do you care about him? Do you love Him? And it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't. Because these people said prior to this, we worship the God of Israel. See, there's this altar over there. See, there's the foundation of the temple. We're going to finish it eventually as soon as I finish the third extension to my house. And God said, no, you don't care about me. You don't love me and I can tell because you don't fear my presence. If you feared my presence, my temple would be built. Do you care? Do you love God with more than lip service? Fearing His presence was the first thing that Haggai mentioned when he mentioned their obedience. The primary issue was never the temple, even though that's what God pointed out. Despite the fact that his people were perfectly content to forget about him. Listen to this about God. This is why there's grace. Despite the fact that his people were perfectly content to forget about him and not care about him and pay him no attention to let him go, God was not content to do that to them. God was not content to let them go. This is like like a, a, a chick flick wisdom. Okay, here it comes. If you love something, let it go. If it comes back, it was yours. If it never if it doesn't come back, it was never yours to begin with. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. If you love something, you don't want to let it go. That's not the way this works. God loves His people. God cares about His people. God doesn't want to let them go. And He sees them running off and chasing other things that He knows are going to destroy them. So what does God do? God takes away the prosperity of every single one of those things that He's running away from to get their attention. To say, hello, wake up. What you're chasing is not going to provide what you think it's going to. If you were in Sunday school with us this morning, you studied the Ten Commandments. There's a reason that the Ten Commandments include thou shalt have no other gods before me and thou shalt not make any idols, any graven images. Why? Not only because there are no other gods, but because there are no other gods that satisfy. There are no other gods that can act, that can do anything. That The God of Israel, the God of the Bible is the only thing that is good for what ails you. Broken heart? He's good for what ails you. Broken marriage? He's good for what ails you. Broken job? He's good for what ails you. But when you chase all these other things and you get frustrated because God is not letting you prosper, God is not helping you, Instead of getting angry at God, marvel at the fact that God loves you enough to stop you from succeeding in them so that you will turn around and come back to Him. I couldn't help myself. I was getting ready to come over here this morning and I could not get away from just the gut feeling that this sermon was going to hit somebody at home today. I'm, I'm not going to be a, a, a charismaniac and say, well, God's telling me there's one of you in the crowd today. I don't know. All I know is that that's what this text is saying. And I look down at this and I marvel that we have a God who loves us enough to discipline us like children so that we will learn. You know, I, I, I'm watching my little daughter grow up. And right now she can't do much but eat and sit in her little chair and sleep. That's about it. But this weekend, I saw some of my friends that have 18 months olds. They don't sit in little chairs. They run around. And they grab things. And they throw things. And they're dramatic. Bless her heart, this little girl offered me a bow. She was trying to be nice. I guess she figured if it looked good in her hair, I'll have a bow. She offered me a bow, and I said, no, thank you. And she just fell down, face down, and started crying. I felt horrible. But children don't quite put the world to- together the way adults do. Adults have to watch them. And when you've got a big group of children in one place, and one of them is about to do something that's going to hurt them, you can tell who their parent is if their parents are there. How? That's the parent that runs over at them screaming, don't do that, and then grabs them. And if it's something that could have been really dangerous, they probably pop them on the rear end a couple times because that'll sting them, but it'll hurt them a lot less than putting their finger in that outlet. Make sense? they're, They're not spanking their child because they don't love them. They're spanking their child because they do. They want to teach them not to do things that are going to destroy them. It's the same thing with God. You go chasing after all these other things that you hope are going to fix you. That you hope are going to make you feel better. That you hope are going to strengthen your marriage or make your home life better or solve your financial issues. And and you go and and you chase 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 and it doesn't work. Doesn't matter how much you eat, you never full. Doesn't matter how much you drink, you can't drown your problems. Doesn't matter how many clothes you buy, you're still not satisfied with the way you look. Doesn't matter how much seed you sow, it never seems to produce enough. Doesn't matter how many hours you work, your paycheck is gone by the time you get home. Why? Because God is screaming at you, stop trying to replace me, you can't do it. And that's not God being mean. That's God being gracious. Because if God really wanted to let you go, I don't think we understand what God letting go would look like. When we ask for God to let us go, do you understand that the universe exists because He's holding it together? If you look at an atom... Why is a a positive part of it and a negative part of it, why do they do this? Science can't tell you that, by the way. It can just tell you that they do. Why do they do that? Why do atoms hold together into molecules? Why do molecules hold together into cells? Why do cells hold together into people? Why do people hold together into families? Why do families hold together into towns, into states, into countries, into a world? Why does the planet hold together? I can tell you why. It's because God's doing this. He's holding it together. All things were made by Him, through Him, for Him, and in Him all things exist. They have their being. If God were to let go... You wouldn't be able to live the life you want to live because you wouldn't be alive. He's holding you together. You don't want God to let go. You don't want God to leave you alone. You just think you do. What you want God to do is be involved. He loves you enough that he will prevent you from chasing things that won't help you. Now, so I want to break this into a couple different categories. For my folks in here who know Jesus and you're frustrated with God, let me remind you of something. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. It's exactly like I just said with parents. When a parent spanks a kid... When a parent disciplines a child, when a parent grounds a child, takes the keys, whatever. The reason they're doing that is because they're trying to teach their child good habits. To make good choices. To make safe choices. To not do something that's going to hurt them. That is the discipline of a loving parent. And do you know what I've discovered through my time working with kids? teenagers that when you have a kid who doesn't receive discipline from a parent sometimes they act out just so that someone will discipline them does that sound ridiculous I think it's because they we innately as humans understand when someone disciplines us they care about us when somebody says I don't care what you do yeah, sure, go do that. Yeah, it could kill you. I don't care. I'm not going to stop you. That's not a parent who loves their child. That's a parent who is just, eh, I'd rather do my own thing. It's their choice. That's not love. That's not how God treats us. So as a Christian, if God is disciplining you, don't get upset with God that He doesn't love you. Be thankful that He, has, he does. That's proof that he does. That he's disciplining you. And then from that point, repent. Turn to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I tried to find joy. I tried to find peace in something else. That's for your Christian. Now, for, for somebody who says, well, what about me? I, I don't consider myself a Christian. I've never given my life to Christ or whatever that means. Let me give you some grace here. Acts 17.30, when Paul was talking to a group of Gentiles, in Acts 17.30, he was sharing the gospel with them and he says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. When Paul called them ignorant, he was not insulting their intelligence. He was not saying that they were dumb. When he called them ignorant, he meant it in the, little sin, in the literal sense. That there was something of which they were not aware. There was something they'd never heard. That God had never revealed Himself to them in this particular way in which they could have a relationship with Him. But that now, they're hearing God's Word and they have an opportunity to repent and trust Him. The times of ignorance are over because knowledge has come. If you are here and you are lost, let me point out the grace that exists in your life at this very second. A, you're breathing. B, you're here. C, your heart's beating. D, and I can make this long list, but here's the most gracious thing God has done for you. You are sitting here Under the voice of someone who is about to tell you the God of the universe loves you, but your sin is an issue and he has provided a way for you to be forgiven through the shed blood of his son Jesus who died for you to take the penalty that you should have received. You today can be saved from the penalty of your sins and have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ based solely on faith placed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate grace you possess today, that you have heard this message and that you have an opportunity to respond to it. Because sadly, if the events of this last week have reminded us of anything, it is that none of us are guaranteed our next moment. How many people thought that they were just going to a country music concert and they were going to be back in their hotel room that night? Maybe order a pizza, relax, watch a movie with some friends, head home in the next day or two. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? You're not guaranteed your next moment. I'll I'll go to Jesus one day, but i got other things in my life I want to do first. No. Today. 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 Stop. God's given you grace. Up until this point, you could say He's overlooked your time of ignorance, but knowledge has now come. You've heard the gospel. What are you going to do with it? He's loved you enough to discipline you. And if you choose not to, second half of my message to the lost, Romans 1.28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. That there is the danger that God will let you believe what you want. He'll knock and knock and knock and knock and knock. And eventually, if you tell him no loud enough, the truth of Scripture is that eventually a day may come where you don't hear. I didn't say Jesus stopped knocking. You just may not hear it anymore. Have you ever been in a room that somebody's maybe got some potpourri or something in? place I went this weekend, somebody had vanilla in their house. It smelled great for like five minutes. it didn't stink. That's not why I said it smelled great for five minutes. After about five, ten minutes of being there, I didn't notice it anymore. It was new, and it was noticeable when I walked in and it hit my nose and I smelled it, and I'm like, "Wow, that's vanilla, that smells really nice." But then about 10 minutes later, I didn't notice it anymore. Why? Because I'd been around it so long I became numb to it. Do you know the same thing can happen with the gospel? That you can hear it so much. You can hear it so many times. You can be around it so much that it just you're numb to it. That it doesn't shock you. It doesn't arrest you like it did before. That somehow we can get used to the idea that God, the the infinitely perfect, infinitely good God of the universe has provided a way to forgive our sins when we committed cosmic treason against Him. It's not shocking anymore. It should. If you're here lost today, you are dead in your sins and on your way to hell if not for the grace of God. Don't you want the grace today? Because you may not have tomorrow. God disciplining you is a show of God's love and mercy to you. Because if He didn't care about you, He would let you drive straight off that cliff. God literally said, you will go to hell over my dead body. That's literally what He said. That's what He did. If you want to end up in hell, because by the way, that's the only way anybody ever gets there. If you want to end up in hell, then you're going to have to climb over the crucified body of Jesus to get there. God died to keep you out. Come to Jesus. And second, God's not just for you. He's with you. So don't don't just fear God's presence. Realize His grace in reaching out to you, but then you go, oh my goodness. I recognize that God, God's presence is here and that I'm not, I, I don't know what to do with this. I'm scared. This might be you, that when you hear the gospel, you can say, I would love to be forgiven, but there is no way God's going to forgive me. You don't know, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. Let me say in the most loving tone I can to you, I don't care what you've done. But Pastor, I'm a drunk, but Pastor, I did this, but Pastor, I did that. I look at me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you're sitting in here with a liquor bottle in your pocket. Come to Jesus. Jesus will fix your want to. But pastor, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it will. But God's not just for you. He's with you. Listen to this. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you. This statement's interesting for one major reason. I did not put this on your handout because it's extremely long. But you can make a note if you want to go look at it. First Kings chapter 8. This is Solomon's dedication of the temple. The temple that got torn down before this one was built. Twelve times, and I did not use software. I counted. So if I'm wrong, don't send me an nasty email. Twelve times in this passage, Solomon says something like this place or this temple. What he's saying is God. When people pray toward this temple, when people in other countries pray toward this place. When people bring offerings to you in this temple. In other words, there was the idea intrinsic to the Jewish faith at the time that God dwelled with His people in the temple. If you were closer to the temple, you were closer to God. If you were farther from the temple, you were farther from God. The temple was the place where heaven and earth met. That's the way they understood it. So now when these people have become conscious that God is upset with them because they did not build the temple and they fear the presence of God, they think of God's presence as dwelling in His his temple. Right? So if there's no temple, what does that mean there's also not? God's presence. That, oh my goodness, we're dwelling in the land and God is not with us. How terrifying is that thought? Have you ever thought... Think back, if you're a Christian... If you've given your life to Christ. If you can remember it. Think back to before you knew Jesus. Knowing what you know now. Is that part of your life scary? Should be. They realized. Oh my goodness. What if God's not with us? But then God gives the ultimate reassurance in telling them through Haggai, I'm with you. What does that mean? What what can we take away from this? What seems to be more important to God in this instance is not that there's no temple. It's that the hearts of his people are far from him, which is why there is no temple. When they hear his voice and their hearts change, his presence returns. He's with them again. if you have got a sickness let's say you've got a a a very dangerous brain illness that's causing headaches that is totally curable totally curable and you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor i've got this brain illness i know this for a hundred percent it's totally curable I need you to give me medicine, and the doctor gives you Tylenol for your headaches. Good doctor, bad doctor. He's a bad doctor. Yes, the Tylenol may take away the pain, but it doesn't, call, it doesn't take away the underlying illness, which could eventually kill you. The temple is the symptom, not the disease. The disease is that their hearts are cold and distant from God. They don't care about Him. Because they don't care about God, you don't see it in the rest of their life. So as soon as their heart changes, God says, now you get it. Now I'm with you. Your heart has changed to realize that it's not the temple I'm concerned about. It's your heart. If your heart's right, the temple will take care of itself. But pastor, I've got to clean this up and this up and this up and this up before I come to God or He won't want anything to do with me. Kind of like they're saying, well, we've got to build this temple before God's going to be with us again. No, you've got to repent. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Confess your sin. Repent of it. And you know what God will do? When Jesus saves you, He will change your desires. Did I say it was going to be easy? No. But God will be with you. He doesn't just give you all these commands and then turn you loose. James 4, 8-10, through 10, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. What James is saying is stop trying to bring this joy about on your own. Mourn over your sin. Confess it. Repent of it. Humble yourself and then let God lift your head up instead of trying to lift your own. Repent of it. Go to God with a broken heart over your sin. Let Him save you and then find out what joy really is. God is not waiting on you to clean up your life before He wants something to do to you. You can't clean up your life. Let me tell you something as pastor of this church. Do I want... People to be saved and join this congregation. Yes, I do. Very, very much. But the call, me calling you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and become part of this local body is not me standing here telling you, here's how you join the church you stop cussing, you stop drinking, you stop sleeping around, you stop cheating on your husband, your wife, you stop. That's not, now, am I saying those things won't happen? No, they ought to happen. You meet Jesus, they will happen. But what I'm saying is the pathway to salvation does not go through you working harder. You can't work hard enough to be saved. You can't work hard enough to heal your relationship with God. Jesus has done all the work for you. I know I'm a really deadpan person and I'm not really excitable, but that'll get me going. Where is the energy amongst the church or about the grace of God? Have we just gone tone deaf to it? Have you ever really gotten in trouble and somebody said, I forgive you, I'm going to give you another shot? Lord, you just about want to cry and hug that person's neck. And we come in here to the church and go, Amazing grace, how sweet. Does... It's like it doesn't matter. God has given you grace. You don't have to earn it, you don't have to prove it. This is why we don't judge people when they walk in the door. Because remember, anytime we point at somebody and go, oh, you know what he did. You know what she did. Remember, when you one finger forward, you got at least three pointing back at you. And if you hadn't done what somebody else did at one point, you probably thought about it. Don't lie. Every single one of us in this room today is a sinner of equal degree. Pastor included. There is not a hierarchy list of these are the good saints who are good church folks and these are the dirty rotten sinners who need Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. no. There is a dirty rotten sinners tier and we're all on it. Me too. We are all dirty rotten sinners and we all need the grace of Christ. There's not a person in here who doesn't. And if you, think you're, if you think you're good enough and you don't need the grace of Christ, then I offer you the door there's nothing I can offer you. I don't mean to be rude, but if you're here today and you believe that you are perfectly good, you don't need repentance, you don't need forgiveness, that you find you and the man upstairs, you got a good agreement going, then after this service, feel free to see your way out and you don't have to come back because I'm offering grace to sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't need it, there's nothing here for you. But if, however, you say, Josh, I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong things. And I know I can't do anything about it. Well, I have good news for you. That the Son of God has taken on flesh and He lived the perfect life you could never live. He died the death you ought to have died. And He rose the resurrection that one day you can share with Him. There is grace for you. the heart that's the issue. And Jesus can change your heart. The heart affects what we do on the outside. Matthew 15, 19-20 For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Where does the sin in your heart life come from? It doesn't come from things on the outside. It comes from stuff on the inside. You change the inside, the outside will change as well. That's why I say you don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, He'll clean up your life. And then finally, God doesn't just command you. He stirs you up. Verses 14 and 15. So we've got a long list of names here. It's the same names we've been reading several times. So the Lord stirred up the Spirit. Remember that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. What I notice here is the list of people who obeyed and stepped out in faith are the people whose spirits the Lord stirred up. It's the people who heard the prophet and responded to him whose spirits God stirred up. Now, we could get into a really complicated question of who did this, them or God. Did the the people do it or did God do it to the people and therefore they acted? I'm not getting into that today. I'm not going to do it. It's too complicated and I don't have time because I've been going for 42 minutes and 47 seconds already. But what I will ask you this, if Abraham in the Old Testament had not stepped out in faith, would he have ended up in the promised land? No. Listen to how God called him. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1-3, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every bit of this was stuff God said, I'm going to do in the future, but you don't get to see any of it today. He had no idea where he was going. God effectively looked at Abraham and said, hey, go out of your house and start walking, I'll tell you when you get there. He didn't know. Well God, I will obey you if you'll just give me what I need to get the job done. No, it might be that if you will obey Him, he will give you the stuff to get the job done and not a moment before. Well, I just I've just got to know you're good for it. That's a lack of faith right there out of hand. That's not how God works with His people. And it wasn't Abraham getting up and walking out, it was his faith. It was his faith that made him end up in the promised land. Not his walking. His faith led to his walking. Check Romans 4.3 if you think I'm wrong. I didn't put that on your handout either, but that's a fun note for you to go and read later. God accounted his faith to him as righteousness. So here's your last call today. Hebrews 3, 7-8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. In the same way that Haggai spoke to the people of Israel in this book, God spoke to you today. How do I know that? Because I'm a conservative Southern Baptist that believes when you read your Bible out loud, you've heard the voice of God all audibly. That's how I know God spoke. God is telling you today, stop building your own kingdom. Worry about building mine. Recognize if you see a lack of of love for God coming out of your hands, coming out of your mouth, coming out of your calendar, coming out of your checkbook, coming out of your car tires, wherever you're going. I don't know. Wherever you see that lack of love for Christ... It's rooted in your lack of love for Christ in your heart. Stop chasing other gods and start chasing Jesus. The fact that you are hearing this message, the fact that God is maybe disciplining you, and I feel like I ought to say this too: you need to be you need to consider the, the possibility that maybe, just maybe. Your frustration in your job or your finances or your hobby or whatever it is you're trying to do, you might need to accept the possibility that God is frustrating that effort because you are trying to replace Him with it. If you're doing that, God might be working against you. That is His way of being gracious to you and drawing you back to Himself for true joy and peace. Stop chasing it chase him. If you're lost today, you need to come to Christ. I want to talk to you about that. Joyce and Abby are about to lead us in a couple of verses of a hymn.